This excellent medical student-led podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as medical advice under any circumstance. Welcome back, everyone. Episode 36. A fun one for you. It's been a long time in the making, but I'm sitting here next to Dr. Henshin, who's someone I actually interviewed with before I came to Northwestern. And he and I will be presenting a case to two surprise discussants who you guys will get to meet in a second. But I'll let Dr. Henshin say hey first. Hey, folks. Like Kevin said, it uh, certainly has been a long time coming. I am a general internist here at Northwestern. I'm the clerkship director for the medicine clerkship. And this is an exciting time of year because I am helping our M4 students who are applying to internal medicine get interviews and uh, figure out what they want to do with the rest of their lives. So uh, excited to be on the podcast and thanks for having me. Yeah, we're super excited to have you and exciting time and especially for these two who are sitting across from me. All right. Hey, everyone. It's Nathan Kudlapur. Good to be back. You know, past few months, I've been on the hosting side of the table, but good to be back on the discussant side. What's new in life? We're now post ERAS submission, so that's a great feeling. And other things, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I got a ukulele, so I've been learning how to play that. You know, nice. It's been a good way to spend my time as of late. <laughs> I love it. Hey, everybody. I'm Kaushik Kandabi. Surprise, surprise. Glad to be back in the hot seat. Like Nathan and Dr. Henshin just mentioned, we are now post ERS submission and just awaiting some interviews. So if my voice sounds a little calmer, a little more relaxed, that's probably why since the last episode we recorded. But yeah, excited <laughs> to be back and intrigued to see what, what today's case is going to yeah, be. Yeah, we got a good one for you. Huh? <laughs> I know y'all are going to do great, but Kausha could better do great because he's been in my clinic for the past three and a half years. <laughs> so, so however great I do is a direct reflection on Dr. Henshin. I'll take that. So it's just all, it's all be I'll take that. that. You guys ready? Yeah. All right. In usual fashion, our first Alquats, keeping it broad. We have a 55 year old woman. She's had a renal transplant secondary to FSGS back in 2015. Also has hypertension, diabetes, and a history of spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD. She came to the ED with one week of progressive confusion and hallucinations. All right. Confusion and hallucinations. Interesting. Okay. So I think the way that I am initially kind of trying to dissect this a little bit is first looking at the past medical history. You know, I see the hypertension, I see the diabetes. Renal transplant is certainly a little less common and so is a little bit more unique with regards to this patient. I think that the renal transplant, especially the spontaneous coronary artery dissection, are the two parts of this patient's past medical history that I'm kind of honing in on right now. You know, a spontaneous coronary artery dissection is certainly something that I am not as familiar with. It's something that I feel like is pretty uncommon. And so um, my alert is kind of high just starting off with uh, with those two pieces of history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sort of thinking, you know, like, like graft failure. And so like, you know, she's probably on immunosuppressant medication. Does she have like a, you know, infection that's causing this altered mental status? The hallucination is an interesting piece. Like, you know, we could be thinking about, is it like a primary psych disorder going on? Yeah, those are some of the niche thoughts I have. Yeah, for sure. With this kind of chief complaint of, you know, progressive confusion, hallucinations, I always try and simplify things for myself mentally. And so I always try and think about things in terms of buckets. So I think Nathan just kind of mentioned two really great ones. You know, we have kind of a neurologic bucket with this history of renal transplant. Could it be some sort of metabolic disturbance or could it be infectious? You know, she's several years now out from a renal transplant in 2015 so maybe something a little more chronic than acute but but yeah i think that's maybe a neurologic infectious or two kind of initial buckets to frame our thinking yeah 
love the initial thoughts, love putting things into buckets, and I think you guys are doing a good job keeping it broad, but trying to find some salient features to focus on. Kapshik highlighting some unique past medical history to keep in mind, just because you're not used to seeing it. Nathan kind of using that information, renal transplant, immunosuppressed, worried about infection. How does that tie into confusion, maybe? Dr. Henshin, any thoughts on these guys' first stab at it? I think they're doing great. I think it's a good adage in internal medicine, just when you start out helping to frame the problem. I think you all are doing brilliant on that, but it's just, it's an adage that can't be repeated enough. And especially if you run into a case where you're on the inpatient wards and you are struggling with, you know, repeated negative tests or kind of not going anywhere, it's really helpful to step back and think, are we even on the right path to begin with? And so it's probably the most important cross point at any, in any case. Yeah. You guys ready for some more? Yeah. Let's do it. All right. A little more information on her presentation. She's been in her usual state of health until she started Ozempic for diabetes about five weeks ago, noting to first become tired and fatigued. Her Ozempic dose was then doubled around a week ago and her symptoms became worse. Over the past week, she's had progressive confusion, just having some hallucinations. She's able to recognize that the things she sees may not actually be there, currently saying she sees pink panther yellow stripes. She has fatigue, nausea, appetite loss, and abdominal pain. Those were all noted to start around the timing of Ozempic. And abdominal pain and constipation, actually, that's progressively worse. She's also been feeling a bit more thirsty in the past week. I've included her medicines. She does have medical history, like you mentioned, the transplant, so she's on some unique medicines. To highlight the, the pertinent ones, I think, are alpyrinol, amitriptyline, diltiazem, lisinopril, mycophenolate, pantoprazole, prednisone, 5 milligrams, propanolol resubistatin, semaglutide, citagliptin, tacrolimus, and Tums. Main medication, like in terms of like timeline with the symptoms going on here that we can point to is the Ozempic. So Ozempic, so that's like a GLP-1 agonist. You can like use it for like diabetes treatment. It like, you know, increases like satiety. And so you can get like also like weight loss with this medication. So like, I know about like, the mechanism and how it works, but I don't know that much about the side effects of Ozempic personally. Do you want to cow shit? Totally. I think that, you know, this is this is a pretty this is a fairly extensive review of systems. So I think kind of triaging it mentally to start out. So she started the Ozempic around five weeks ago and then noticed some tiredness and fatigue. That isn't as immediately concerning to me. You know, I think of a patient who is starting this kind of medication, probably experiencing some level of weight loss, decreased nutritional intake, because like Nathan just mentioned, it's kind of promoting the satiety. And so, you know, some fatigue, some tiredness isn't totally out of the ordinary for me as far as what I might expect. Mm -hmm. And then the symptoms becoming more pronounced after this was doubled does kind of get to what Nathan was saying as well, that I feel a little more confident right now, thinking that the Ozempic is a little bit of the, a possible inciting factor here. Now the hallucinations is very interesting. And truthfully, like Nathan just mentioned, the side effects themselves aren't something I'm too familiar with. That being said, I don't know that I, my initial inclination isn't to call this a side effect. I think there's likely some sort of derangement happening that's causing this symptom. I don't know that I, it's, a, it's not a side effect I'm familiar with. And then fatigue, nausea, appetite loss, abdominal pain. Okay, appetite loss kind of goes along with the mechanism, but abdominal pain and constipation especially. I mean, that does kind of point to me like there is likely some sort of metabolic derangement that might be concurrently causing like these neuro this neurologic presentation of hallucinations along with, with some sort of like GI like issue, you know, like a lack of like digestive mm -hmm. issues. Yeah. 
Looking at the med list, one medication here that I know you can get psychotic symptoms with is the prednisone. With steroids, you can get like psychotic symptoms with that. She's, I'm guessing she's probably been on this for like a few years at this point without any symptoms. So it's a bit strange she would suddenly have symptoms. So I'm wondering, I don't know exactly about like the metabolism of Ozempic, but thinking maybe there's some sort of like interaction with like, you know, CYP and CYP enzymes that are like interfering with the metabolism, like in tandem with some of the other medications that are causing these symptoms. So that's one that I have. Yeah, for sure. I think definitely a, a possible medication interaction yeah. just based on how unique her history is and how unique her med list is for Any sure. Any other concerning medications on the list for her presentation? You know, I mean, the so she's on the tacrolimus and, you know, one of the I'm familiar with some that tacrolimus often does cause some pretty significant side effects that can be neurologic. You know, I've seen Excellent. yeah, I've seen mm -hmm. tacrolimus induced tremors before yep. and can sometimes often or can sometimes also cause like tacrolimus induced press. Yeah. Um, yeah. Shout out to my ICU rotation that I was just on a couple of weeks ago for that little nugget. But but I, but yeah, I, that's also kind of fitting in with her unique medication that she's on along with this along with this acute presentation it that honestly does kind of lean me more to what nathan was saying as far as the medication side effect we started her on the ozempic increased the dose the symptoms got worse and i'm wondering if it's if it's a side effects not necessarily of the ozempic but maybe of one of these other other medications tremendous work you guys i wanted to give a little background i think for our listeners about some aglutide you know because we're going to be seeing a lot more of it as you you likely are aware weekly subcutaneous semaglutide was FDA approved for weight loss. So the indication of the patient population that could potentially be on them pending insurance coverage is pretty massive. So it is usually started at a very low dose that sort of almost sub-efficacious dose in order to have patients be able to tolerate the therapy because the major side effects are some of the ones that we've listed, cramping abdominal pain, gas bloating, and then either diarrhea or constipation, depending on the patient. So usually the medication started out at a very low dose and then ramped up every month so that side effects are more tolerable for patients. So that some of the symptoms that she's having are, are pretty classic for that, but there's others, particularly the psychiatric ones that are not very classic for this presentation at all. So great pickup, and I really loved your analysis of the meds. Yeah, you guys reasoned through the ROS pretty flawlessly, in my opinion. You seem to be narrowing now on maybe primary metabolic versus med-to-med -med interaction. Mm -hmm. Let's see where it goes. Chunky aliquot here. <laughs> Start with the physical exam. No acute distress. H-E-E-N-T was normal. No JBD, normal work of breathing. Her lungs were clear. Her cardiovascular exam, regular rate rhythm, normal S1, S2, an early systolic flow murmur that was previously noted. Her abdominal exam, non-distended, mildly tender to deep palpation in the lower quadrants. Her extremities were warm and well perfused, no edema. Her neuro exam, she was alert and oriented two to three. Speaking in coherent sentences, she was a bit tangential. She had positive vis visual hallucinations. Her moving all of her extremities, no cerebellar dysfunction, positive glabellar tap sign. I've included a little details about that. Do you all know what the glabellar tap sign is? I think I've heard about it or read about it somewhere. That looks dangerously the, familiar. Those of you who are listening with another person in the room can actually practice this on your friend. I could practice it on Dr. Grzynski here, but essentially <laughs> what you do is you tap on their forehead. Uh, and like, in a normal, non-altered human response, they should get used to that sensation and stop blinking their 
eyes. But in someone who often has a frontal lobe release, such as patients with a metabolic disturbance, patients with Parkinsonism, or patients with other types of dementia that reactivate some of their primitive reflexes, they'll continue to blink in response to the tapping on the forehead. So it's a great bedside diagnostic <laughs> sign for patients with frontal lobe dysfunction. It's not very specific, though. So it, patients who have ultra mental status can tend to have this, but it sort of confirms that underlying state. I like that. Mm -hmm. Gonna incorporate the forehead tap into my, <laughs> my regular bedside exam. <laughs> so some basic labs: white count of five point five, hemoglobin's at baseline, which is ten point seven, and platelets were normal at two fifty two. Basic BMP, normal sodium, normal potassium, chloride was eighty seven, and bicarb was thirty five. Her BUN was seventy, and her creatinine was five point three four. Her baseline in the preceding weeks had been two point two. Her LFTs were normal. Her albumin was a little low at 3.5. There was no protein gap. Her calcium was elevated at 14.5. Magnesium was normal at 1.9, and phosphorus was normal at 3.0. Given the metabolic abnormalities, she got a VBG, which reflected a pH of 7.45 with a CO2 of 45. X-ray showed no cardiopulmonary process. Her ECG was normal. Because of her altered mental status, she got a CT of her head. No ICH, mass effect, or midline shift. No evidence of acute infarct. And then because she's a renal transplant patient and Nathan brought up early, you worry about rejection. She got a renal Doppler, which showed patent vessels and normal resistive indices. A lot to, to dive through on this. Why don't you guys break it up in chunks and kind of reason through. All righty. So a lot of information. Just starting with the physical exam, things that are notable for, to me that jump out initially are on the CV exam, notable for an early systolic flow murmur, but previously noted. So. With regards to this acute picture and this acute change from baseline, it doesn't it that's less concerning to me. If that's just where she lives and that's normal for her, then then we can move on for now. The abdominal exam, mildly tender to deep palpation, seems consistent with with some of her symptoms she was having before of the abdominal pain, the constipation at this time still seems a little bit associated with some possible ozempic side effects. And then the neuro exam, it seems like there's kind of these like neuropsych manifestations, you know, tangential speech, the visual hallucinations and the glabellar tap signs. So it seems like there's some like cortical dysfunction or some cortical process. So that's what jumps out to me on physical exam. Nate, what do you think of, what do you think of the labs? The lab, so I think the thing that stands out to me most, well, the creatinine rise, 5.3 <laughs> from like a baseline 2.2, that's very concerning. Like these are your concern for like graph rejection. You know, she has this like, you know, her bicarb is like pretty high and like lower chloride. So yeah, the creatinine is probably the main thing I'm worried about from the lab standpoint. Looking at like the imaging, so I think the like CT brain is helpful, can like make us sort of rule out some like, like structural pathology, they're like some sort of brain bleed or like a tumor or something. Right. Yeah, the renal Doppler, I mean, this, Patent vessels and normal resistive indices. I don't think that necessarily like rules out like rejection picture. I think it just means that you're still getting like perfusion to the to the graft. Yeah. Yeah, those are my initial thoughts. For sure. I totally agree. I think that the creatinine jump was really alarming. I think that in the setting of these renal Doppler findings is a little bit reassuring. It like like Nate you just mentioned, I totally agree that it doesn't rule it out by any means and we still need to have our antennas up. But the Doppler findings are reassuring that it is maybe a little bit less likely to me in my mind right now that it is a rejection picture. You know, the the VBG is interesting. It seems like there's maybe a very mild alkalosis, seems metabolic, 
CO2 of 45 seems like there's some respiratory compensation, which looks appropriate. And then I think right now with these neurologic exam findings with this creatinine and CT brain that didn't show any acute process, which I totally agree with Nate, like we have to rule out an acute intracranial process in a patient presenting with some concerning neurologic findings. This, if there's something that seems to tie these together to me in my mind right now, it seems to be possibly tacrolimus induced, maybe some nephrotoxicity, maybe some neurologic findings that, you know, if it is a possible press type picture that's causing the visual hallucinations, I don't think a CT, a CT brain would necessarily be the most sensitive for picking that up. But again, it's way too early to hone in on anything. I still think keeping a broad differential is key. So still considering possible graph rejection or even two independent processes. But that's kind of where my mind is at right now. Yeah, I don't know like what her like vitals were necessarily like if she was like febrile or not. She has like no no, no fever. She's like normal white count. I, she's on like these immunosuppression medications, so like you know it doesn't necessarily mean she doesn't have an infection if these are normal. Yeah, um, but it yeah. seems less likely. It seems, but seems less likely. Right. Yeah. So why don't you guys synthesize some of the pertinent findings here that you're going to focus on for your next level of workup? I would say the main findings is like acute mental status changes mental status changes with psychotic symptoms in the setting of recent semi-glutide initiation with an ak significantly above the baseline mm -hmm. yeah what about her acid base status it, yeah it seems like uh it seems like a, a metabolic or a mild metabolic alkalosis ph of 7.45 and then co2 of 45 suggests appropriate respiratory compensation are you saying primary metabolic alkalosis then? That's what it, yes. Yes, I would say so. Truthfully, not 100% sure what to what to make of it right now. Um, yeah. yeah. What about I, the other electrolytes? I'll tell you, we weren't quite at this point as the inpatient workup team either. So y'all are on the uh -huh. right track. I think anytime anyone sees a uh, creatinine elevation in a kidney transplant patient, the alarm bells start going off because mm -hmm. you want to go save that kidney. Right. So sometimes mm -hmm. we fixate on that, which I think is very appropriate. Um, but it's good to, you know, it, it, it depends on whether you want to talk about your initial bucket or pathway as a mm -hmm. confusion, altermental status pathway, or an acute kidney injury mm -hmm. pathway. Or there's one that can which that in and of itself could drive these mental status changes. Mm -hmm. But then we still have the question of what's causing hypercalcemia. Right. Yeah, what's your differential? I mean, my, my must rule out is, is typically malignancy, you know, but hypercalcemia of malignancy. That's always my number one. Need to make sure that's not it. How do you do that? HRP. Okay. Right. Particularly protein. I think the main thing we're thinking about is this is due to like parathyroid or like a malignancy. Mm -hmm. So for, I mean, let's probably start with getting PTH. She, with the renal disease, you have like hyper, like hyperparathyroidism. Yeah. It's not mm -hmm. a consequent of the renal disease. So it's, I think it might be a little bit hard to parse out in this case, but that would be first step, I'll say. Looking at PTH to investigate that. I would also think we should get like a tacrolimus level yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. For sure. And then imaging, I think probably could get more like detailed imaging of like the kidneys and abdomen, whether that's like CT, abdomen, pelvis, or like kidney ultrasound. I'd also be interested in um, so in like dedicated brain imaging as well. I mean, are the with the CT brain findings, with these neurologic with these neurologic findings on exam, I mean, I would, I would be interested to see what an MRI brain would show, to see if there were any changes. 
I I guess I'm also thinking about the creatinine and thinking about if this was a patient who I was taking care of in the hospital. This is, you know, hat tip to my nephrology fellow brother who drills this into me so many times. But whenever, <laughs> but whenever you see a creatinine jump, you always got to make sure they're peeing. Always got to make sure they're not retaining. Mm-hmm. That would be that would probably be the first thing I would check mentally if we were in the hospital. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I, I agree with everything Nate, Nate just said too. I'm going to push you guys a little bit because we're getting close to that time of the year and you're going to make a big transition. But what are your initial management steps now too? I think with hypercalcemia, you start with giving IV fluids. Mm-hmm. Especially in a patient like this who you know could certainly be symptomatic from right. hypercalcemia. What about the AKI? I'd also want probably start by giving fluids too, just to see if there's a hypovolemic aspect. Yeah. Um, Does the give, history support that? It well, I mean, with, like decrease in POA. Yeah, right? exactly. Be like, totally with with her ozempic, she was probably eating mm-hmm. less, probably you know maybe drinking less, decreased intake. Yeah, I'd probably want to give her fluids as well, see how she see if it responded at all. Okay. I think y'all made just a tremendous point there that I want to highlight, which I think is a big take home point for me is, you know, when we talk about volume status assessment, oftentimes you jump to the physical exam. And it is one of the one areas where the physical exam is primarily helpful. But when I evaluate patients with volume status issues in the hospital, I actually use three different buckets. And I try to evaluate those buckets independently. So I think about volume status by history, Mm. volume status by examination, and then volume status by labs. And sometimes you get two out of the three. Sometimes one is not helpful, but you can often synthesize those to think about, you know, what's your overall assessment of the patient's volume status there. And I agree, there's some findings in the history that support hypovolemia. Our exam in this case is not all that helpful to us. If our team had done some orthostatic vital signs for you on admission, that would have been something that's probably helpful. But we did not, so you can blame us for that. And then for labs, I think there's some evidence that this patient is hypovolemic as well. You know, particularly hypercalcemia, like you mentioned, is a primarily because of the calciuresis is a primarily volume depleted state. So I really like your assessment. I think two out of three volume set us down. Let's give the patient some fluids. And then Nate has brought up some good first steps to work up the hypercalcemia. Anything else you guys want to send off while before we move on? Just to recap, I think mentioned PTH, possibly PTHRP, tacrolimus, FK trough. I don't know what else for the like hypercalcemia yeah. workup. For AKI, I mean, we get urine, oh, yeah. electrolytes. So. Um, ready to calculate the yeah. <laughs> We gotta do that before we give her fluids, right? <laughs> yes. All right. Yep. Nothing else jumps to my mind right now. Okay. So Alquat four, the management of hypercalcemia was started. Just put on IV fluids with a quick downtrend to twelve point five after start of fluids. Checked the PTH. It was seven with normal being twelve to eighty eight, so low. Vitamin D was sixty one, which is in within the normal range. Her TSH was normal. Her tacro was sixteen, which is high. PTHRP was negative. Her 125 vitamin D was normal. Her SPEP, UPEP, free light chains was mm-hmm. normal. We did get urine lights. Athena of 2.4%. Got some more advanced imaging of her brain. MRI, that was normal. And then an ANA with reflex, that was negative. It's always so nice when we suggest a lab or suggest something <laughs> and you see it pop up on the next <laughs> slide. Just gives you a warm feeling. Yeah. <laughs> that warm, fuzzy lab feeling. <laughs> exactly. I'm not alone. <laughs> so... We have high level of tacro. I'm not entirely sure like how high that is, like what we'd expect the trough level to be. Yeah, just some context. I believe her goal was six to eight. Okay. And then sampling of tacro 
it's very sensitive to the time at which it was last mm -hmm. taken. So it can be difficult to interpret when you don't know that information. Mm -hmm. But I think for the sake of this case, we can say it was elevated to a moderate degree. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and the, I think the grouping of, you know, the normal PTHRP, SPEP, UPEP, free white chains being normal, vitamin D being within the normal range, I think all can all make me comfortable that this isn't a malignancy picture. You know, the, and she certainly doesn't seem to have any history or findings suggestive of lung malignancy that I also be concerned for with the hypercalcemia. So I think that's something that I can semi-comfortably put to the side right now. And then the PTH, is that appropriate? Inappropriate. So certainly a low PTH. Now in a patient who, you know, has a history of a renal transplant and you know has reasons to have calcium dysregulation you know whether that pth well how concerning that pth is truthfully i don't have a great answer for it right now i think actually i think it's good like if it's low like because her calcium was so high you would expect the pth to be low right. actually like she has a normal vitamin like 125 vitamin D and like pH is appropriately low in the context of this, which is pretty good considering the renal disease. Normally, yeah. like things are a lot more like wacky in patients that have this renal disease. So I think, yeah, like that's being her body's like doing a great job there. I think like her the medication she's on, like for vitamin D supplementation, that's like you know appropriate for her. So I think whatever was causing this hypercalcemia was outside, I think, probably of that potentially. Mm -hmm. Save that thought, we'll get back to there in a second. But Nate, I gotta ask you, what do you think about the FINA? FINA, so <laughs> 2.4%. So it's if we have FINA under under one, then that's when we're thinking about like pre-renal. So this, I mean, would be suggestive of more of like a like intrinsic okay. like renal cause. We we could go through there's like a lot of things that be causing like intrinsic causes, like this whole like the glomerular nephritis pathway. But I don't know, it's interesting. Actually, I haven't really read or seen that many cases of like within a renal like transplant graft, you get some sort of like glomerular nephritis mm. inside of that. But I guess it's possible. So at least from this FINA, I would say it's more specific for an intrinsic okay. cause. And now let's, mm. you kind of, what I'm gathering from you is we have this hypercalcemia, the PTH is appropriately suppressed. Mm -hmm. Probably diagnostically useful in this patient who has history of renal disease, usually they have hyperparathyroidism. So if mm -hmm. it was elevated, maybe it would be more difficult to interpret. But in her case, low. So we're in the pathway of hypercalcemia outside of the parathyroid system. Mm -hmm. What kind of things cause hypercalcemia outside of it? So we mentioned like malignancy. I think that's less likely with normal PTHRP. Huh. Um, SPEP, UPEP, that's investigating. There's some like monoclonal gemopathy, like multiple uh -huh. myeloma. Uh -huh. That's normal. So I would say that's unlikely. Other things, I guess if there's some sort of like bone disease. Hypercalcemia because of that. Do you have other thoughts? Yeah, no, I did. No, I, I totally agree. And then, you know, but, and then kind of circling back to um, like a primary renal process. Maybe, I don't know, she's like crushing the Tums. <laughs> Just like having tons of Tums. Yeah, I don't kind of, know if you get that high calcium just from Tums though. What kind of picture does that paint metabolically? You would get more of an alkalosis. I mean, I guess, yeah, could, could fit in with that. Fascinating. Yeah. What, what are your next steps then? I, mean, I was like, ask her how many tums she's been taking. <laughs> go back to the bedside. Yeah, go, go back, back to the bedside. To the bedside. It's always a good step um, when we get stuck, right? Yeah. Maybe we're missing something from mm -hmm. history. And 
you know, we can look so hard, but if we don't know what we're looking for, it makes things that much more challenging. Anything to add here, Dr. Henshin? I think that's great. I think maybe at the end we'll cover my you know, approach to hypercalcemia. It's one of those electrolytes that you will see a lot. And I feel like for me, it was one that I got stuck on because I didn't have a great way of thinking about it in my head. So I can go through the way that I think about it, but um, you know, I think y'all did a tremendous job of thinking your, yourselves through it. Um, and let's move on. Yeah. So Al Clock five, the team went back to the bedside. Little update. The patient was seen on rounds the next morning and continues to have visual hallucinations. Further history was obtained from her husband. Her husband shares that she's been having 12 tums daily since developing her abdominal symptoms from starting Ozempic. So ask that you guys comment on some of the subjective uh, update and then the new history piece. And I'll ask you guys to put your nickel down on a file diagnosis here. Subjectively, it seems like the, the neuropsych findings have changed since the last since our last exam. Yet the calcium was coming down when we were giving her the IV fluids. And then we learned that she indeed has been crushing the tongues, <laughs> 12 tongues daily. So, I mean, at this point, I, I mean, I feel like it seems like it is hypercalcemia due to like excessive, you know, you know, Tom's intake. All right. Kaushik, agree? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't, I, 12 tums seems a little, see, it seems like that's a pretty heavy number. Yeah. I, I, I agree with what Nate said, you know, with the metabolic alkalosis, with the, with the symptomatology that, you know, seems to sit, that is consistent with hypercalcemia now kind of putting it together with these, you know, moans, groans, psychogenic mm -hmm. overtones, so to speak. And then we have the lab findings that go along with it. It certainly seems like this is our, this is our source of hypercalcemia. <laughs> the final diagnosis was altered mental status, secondary to hypercalcemia from milk alkali syndrome. Her AKI was ultimately attributed to being pre-renal that progressed to ATN. So the thought was she's been having a month of symptoms, like you guys kind of reasoned through, it's been taking in less. Probably was a pre-renal picture at first that became more ATN-y and led to the intrinsic injury. Her hypercalcemia eventually normalized with fluids and remained normal, as did her bicarb, which both support the likeliness that it was ingestion from the calcium carbonate or Tums. Her altered mental status did lag, interestingly. It did eventually prove back to her normal baseline self, but it had lagged a bit after the calcium had normalized, so it did leave some heads um, being scratched at the time, but eventually she got there. What reflections do you guys have on the case? Then we're going to ask Dr. Henshin to walk us through some hypercalcemia pearls. I mean, to me, if this isn't just one of the prime examples of why you should not anchor on diagnoses and why you should always keep an open mind and an open differential that's kind of constantly evolving. And like, and I think Nate suggested in, I think, Aliquot three or four that, you know, it's time to go back to the patient, get a little bit more history. And that ended up being the, the key. If this isn't one of the, a really good example of just keeping a broad differential, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I think, yeah, we got to work through, like, start out, like, altered mental status differential, and along the way, like, hypercalcemia differential, like, yeah. AKI differentials. Yeah, I think, like, highlight, definitely, yeah, highlights the importance of the history, and, and also, like, the tempo of, like, when these symptoms started, yeah. you know, the time course. Yeah. Good job, guys. Okay. <laughs> Impressive reasoning, as always. <laughs> Great job, team. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> good one. Yeah, milk alkali syndrome is something that I think after you see it once, you won't forget it. Yeah. As with many diagnoses in medicine, yeah. but it has a pretty 
stereotypical way that it presents and the, and the combination of hypercalcemia and metabolic alkalosis you should have in your mind that mm -hmm. that, that can be at the top mm -hmm. um, a little i I uh, didn't know this before prepping for this case, but milk alkali syndrome was discovered in the early 1900s because of the popular treatment for gastric ulcers at the time, which was called the SIPI regimen. Has anyone mm -hmm. heard of the SIPI regimen before? No. So Dr. Bertram SIPI graduated from Dr. Grudzinski's alma mater, oh, Rush Medical oh, College. Wow. He was awarded his MD degree in 1890. Oh boy. And he pioneered a therapy for gastric ulcers, which involved uh, drinking a mixture of milk and cream every hour throughout <laughs> the day with intermittent PO boluses of alkali, of bicarb, every so often throughout the day, up to five to six grams a day of sodium bicarb right. consumed by the patient. Mm -hmm. So patients developed severe hypercalcemia related to the combination of ingestion of milk with an alkali. And the milk was, you know, nowadays our, our excessive milk consumption is in the form of Tums or calcium carbonate. So the calcium in the milk plus the alkalosis associated is usually what precipitates the state. The reason why you get hypercalcemic is because it's a lot due to the alkalosis, because in an alkalotic state, the kidney tubules cannot resorb or cannot excrete calcium. And so they end up developing hypercalcemia related to the alkalosis. And interestingly, there probably is a component, not every patient who develops it gets renal insufficiency, but patients who have renal insufficiency are much more at risk of mm. getting it because their kidneys already have an impaired ability mm. to excrete mm. calcium in the first place. So likely there was a combination of two things happening in this patient. One, pre-renal injury mm -hmm. from the vomiting associated with the PO, PO intake associated with the uh, semaglutide. And secondly, the TUMS consumption wow. as well. Wow. So she likely had a, a couple processes going wow. on. But wow. the good news is as soon as you stop doing both of those mm -hmm. things, you're mm -hmm. going to get better. So yeah. she, she got better with the simplest of hospital treatments of lactated ringers. <laughs> Fluid in time. Fluid in time. <laughs> Takes true of time. Exactly. Does wonders. Um, so hypercalcemia is one of those really interesting uh, scenarios that you will encounter uh, very frequently with hospitalized patients and even with outpatients as well. It's one of the things that you will pick up on those chem panels that your patient requests to order for an annual physical that, that you end up ordering anyway. So whenever you see it, I, I think there's two different ways of characterizing it. One is by the degree of calcium and the other one is by the underlying process. I sometimes start with the degree of calcium because if you see someone who's with a calcium of 15 or above, that's a medical emergency, they need to be in a hospital and they need to get a quick rapid workup. And I would say the cases of calcium over 15 are almost 95% or more malignancy related. Mm -hmm. So if you see one that is super high, outside of a couple of other scenarios, actually milk alkali, and severe vitamin D excess can fall in that category too, but those are both extremely rare and I think you have to think about malignancy at the top. Your run-of-the-mill hypercalcemia though, you can usually sort of organize your thought process by you know more of an algorithm. So I start with PTH. If the PTH is high or high normal even, you know, that tells you the body's like Nate, you mentioned the body's not appropriately responding to calcium. So in that case, you probably have primary hyperparathyroidism, unless you have renal insufficiency. Cases where parathyroid is suppressed, right? The body's doing what it's supposed to do, but there's an external driver. So you have to think about what is driving the calcium up. So malignancy is usually with PTHRP, but also with lytic bone lesions, such as you know prostate cancer, renal cell cancer, multiple myeloma. Granulomas can do it. In theory, you should see granulomas 
produce an excess of 125 vitamin D because of the one alpha hydroxylase mm -hmm. contained in the granulomas, but that's not always the case, depending on how, how many granulomas you have. And then you think about what the patient's ingesting. So milk alkali syndrome, medications, particularly thiazide, diuretics, mm -hmm. and vitamin D excess intake. There are some other things on the list, but for, for me, that covers about 80% of it. So when I think about an approach to hypercalcemia, I usually start with a PTH, a vitamin D, and then a thorough history and physical exam thinking about malignancy, as well as potentially a 125 vitamin D level along with a really good med list. Mm, love that, mm -hmm. love that. That's a good one to take with you for next year, guys. Yeah, love it. I actually had a question about the, this patient and, and her altered mental status, how it kind of lagged. Was that something that was is typically unexpected? Is that is altered mental status something you usually see resolve along with the metabolic arrangements? Does that varium in general is that usually it will lag behind the clinical syndrome? We don't quite understand why, but I think the brain takes longer to recover than the rest of the organs. So it's typical that you will see patients' mental symptoms lagging behind the others. And in her, everything else was getting better quite rapidly. And it was the mm. psychiatric syndromes that were taking a bit more time, but mm. she did end up recovering. Awesome. Great case, even better discussion and fantastic company. Thank <laughs> you guys for joining. Thanks, Dr. Hutchin, for Thank, thank you for me. having me. It's an honor to be on this podcast, and <laughs> I think you all do great work, and I appreciate all that you all do. Until next time, we'll see you guys soon. Thanks again for listening. Person, time, and place. We'll see you next time.